how would you like to be free from everyone's expectations? To be able to say it really doesn't matter what you or anyone else thinks of me. But could you ever say that to parents, family members, friends, employers, even the society as a whole, and, and not be totally insensitive and irresponsible? Well, apparently so. Because that's basically what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.3 when he wrote, But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. What was it that motivated Paul to say that? Well, most likely it was something we discover in the first three chapters of his letter, and that is that Paul didn't meet the pastoral expectations of everyone in the church at Corinth. Some thought Apollos was a better speaker. Others liked the way Peter did things, and then some apparently didn't think anyone was doing a good job. Then, as now, there was a lack of agreement as to the preacher's role in the church. So what do you expect of your preacher? Is he to be nothing more than a holy groan in a black suit, as someone once described their preacher? Or is he to be a nice man in a nice building talking to nice people about how nice it is to be nice. As Joe uh, Damphier put it in the Christian Standard some years ago. You know, some see him as a resident scholar and Bible answer man. Others see him as the chief executive officer of a religious corporation or the coach who's responsible for their team's success. Then, of course, there is the seldom expressed but no doubt widely held belief that a preacher is an employee of the church, paid to do the preaching, teaching, calling, visiting, counseling, marrying, burying, administrating, promoting, and sometimes janitoring for the congregation. You know, everyone, it seems, has their expectations, and no one can meet everyone's expectations, especially when those expectations differ. That's true for the preacher, and it's true for you, no matter what you do. So how do we free ourselves from expectations that we can never meet? Well, I think we begin by looking to the Scriptures and let God define our position. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is writing. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You know, if there was contention in the church over the performance of preachers, 
Perhaps the Corinthians needed to be reminded again how preachers are to be regarded. So Paul stated again that he and Apollos and Cephas were to be regarded first and foremost as servants of Christ. That was the position to which God had assigned them. And he had already stated that in his letter. But just to make sure they got it, he said it again using a different word for servant. The word he used back in 3.5 is the one from which we get the word deacon. It originally came from two words meaning to raise dust and hastening. Paul and Apollos were to be thought of as servants who raised the dust because they had an urgent job to do. The word he used here in 4.1 is a different word in the Greek. It's a word that actually means under rower. Now, that may not make much sense to us, but everyone in Corinth knew what it meant. The warships that came by there all the time had three banks of oars. And Paul was saying that he and Apollos were to be thought of as the guys in the bottom deck. Paul considered himself to be a servant in the bottom of a ship, just doing what his captain told him to do, rowing away, listening to the voice of the one who told them when to row, when to stop, and which way to go. That's how the Corinthians were to regard him as an under-rower and as a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, I, I particularly like that image. I like that better than the under-rower. A steward of the mysteries of God. And just what is a steward? Well, a steward is someone who has been entrusted with something to dispense at the proper time, according to instructions. That's what stewards and stewardesses used to do on planes. And that's what he and the others did with the mysteries of God. They dispensed the mysteries of God in the world. Now, we've met the term mysteries of God before. They are the truths that are hidden from our eyes. Truths that, that we cannot discover on our own, but truths that have been revealed in God's Word. Truth about life and death. Truth about purpose and responsibility. Truth about the way the world really is and why. And the way people are and why. Preachers are stewards of these mysteries. And as stewards, they must be faithful. They must be trustworthy. And that is the primary work of a preacher. He is to be a servant who listens to the voice of Christ and dispenses faithfully the mysteries revealed in Scripture. That is his number one responsibility. And that is my primary job as a preacher. Anything else I do is auxiliary and secondary to the primary function of being a faithful steward 
of the mysteries of God. Now, that means the bulk of my time must be spent listening to the voice of Christ, studying His Word, and preparing meals of milk and meat to dispense faithfully when the saints gather to be fed. Now, obviously, that's a bit different than the expectations of some. But if I let God define my position, and this I think He has done through the Apostle Paul, I don't have to worry about anyone else's definition or resulting expectations. The same is true for you. If you let God define your position in life, your purpose in life, it won't matter what others expect. It won't matter what they think. Because you will let God judge your performance. Let's read on. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. You know, Paul has just said he wants to be regarded as an under-rower of Christ, so obviously he must please Christ. And that means he may not meet everyone else's expectations, but that really doesn't bother him. In fact, he says he wasn't concerned about pleasing the church, society, or himself. He began by saying, it's a very small thing that I be examined by you, addressing the Corinthian congregation. He recognized that congregations do tend to examine their preachers and even apply pressure to get them to conform to their ideas. In fact, Stuart Briscoe says there are three kinds of congregational pressure. Adulation, which swells the head. Manipulation, that ties the hands. And antagonism, that breaks the heart. And I think he's right on, on all three counts. There's a subtle pressure to please in adulation. And preachers like to be liked and praised as much as anyone else. But a preacher has to be careful not to let the praises of his people go to his head. It's easy to start thinking like the young preacher who started feeling pretty good about himself after everyone responded positively to a sermon. On his way home, he rhetorically said to his wife, I wonder how many great preachers there are in the world. Her response was just what he needed. One less than you think. (laughs) 
An honest wife is a real asset in the ministry. Too much adulation is dangerous for a preacher. It not only swells his head, it can censor what he says. You know, the mysteries of God include truth about sin and its consequences. And such declarations are seldom popular or well-received. If a preacher is concerned about the response he's going to get, he'll be tempted to tickle the ears of his congregation to get the praises that he craves. Another way a congregation can pressure a preacher is through what Briscoe called manipulation. Now, all congregations have some type of power structure. And no preacher should be given a free hand in everything. But there are some people who think it's their divine calling to keep the preacher in check. Some do it by intimidation through their wealth or personal influence. And some do it by getting on a board that holds a man's salary over his head and ties his hands with a paycheck. A lot of preachers have thrown in the towel because they didn't feel they had the freedom to listen to the voice of Christ. The third type of congregational pressure that Briscoe mentioned is antagonism. Outright, sharp, open-faced opposition where someone turns against the preacher and often organizes an opposition party to fight against everything he tries to do. Far too many preachers have been broken by that. As an aside, I'm very grateful, very grateful for you. You've given me the freedom to listen to Christ for over 40 years. I thank you for that. But too many preachers have been broken by these things that are mentioned. It's very unusual for someone to stay in a pulpit as long as I have. Not many churches would put up with it. Again, thank you. But Paul says, I really don't care what you think of me. Whether you examine me or not, I'll not give in to your pressure. And ultimately, I take my orders from him. Now, that doesn't mean a preacher shouldn't be sensitive to the needs of his people, nor seek the counsel and wisdom of the elders. In fact, if the elders are functioning biblically, it's through them that the mind and will of Christ will be discerned for his church. But ultimately, a preacher must listen to Christ, not the congregation. And a preacher must not seek the approval of the community, Either Paul adds, or by any human court, or literally, it says, or by man's day. Paul's saying he can't conform to societal pressure. He can't worry about what the community thinks of him. And obviously he didn't, as witnessed by the number of towns he was thrown out of. You know, community pressure can be strong, very strong. There's a real temptation to try to make the church you serve look good by being the most active and involved and popular preacher in town. And I'm afraid that pressure has sidetracked many 
a preacher from his primary calling. There's only so much you can do. And she tried to please the community by being front and center in everything that happens. You don't have time to be in the Word like you should. I think that's sad. Paul then says something really interesting. He says, I do not even examine myself. Now that, by that he can't mean he's opposed to self-evaluation because in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he tells us to test ourselves, to see if we are in the faith, to examine ourselves, to be sure Christ is in us and in what we do. What he's saying here is that he can't fully examine himself because his judgment is incomplete. He's noting that self-evaluation is imperfect, that we really don't know everything about ourselves and why we do what we do. He says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. I may not see everything about myself, so I better not assume I'm okay just because I think I am. I better not get too self-satisfied. By the same token, we can't be too hard on ourselves either. You know, always examining everything we do and questioning why we do it. Now, this was something that I had to struggle with when I first went into the ministry. When I was six years old, I announced I was going to be a preacher. And I never had any plans other than to go to Bible college upon high school graduation. There was no question in my mind what I wanted to do. But when many of my classmates were being drafted, and I was sitting securely in Lincoln with my 4-D deferment, I began to wonder if my motives were really pure. Not so bad that at one point I, I doubted my motive for everything I was doing. Eventually, I concluded it was a scheme of the devil to incapacitate me. And that I really couldn't know every reason why I did everything I did. God knew my heart better than I did. And all I had to worry about was doing what I knew he wanted me to do. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Don't worry about your motivation because you won't really know what it is until God brings to light the things that are hidden, our hidden motives and ambitions. All we can do is live and minister with an awareness that God knows our heart and therefore, keep our motives as pure as we can. We must never become so introspective that we fail to do what we know He wants us to do. Now, there comes a time for self-evaluation when we must stop asking, why do I do that? And just do it. <laughs> because the Lord told us to. Only Christ can judge a man's motives, so let's leave it to him. Let's not worry too much about our motives. And by all means, let's not judge one another's motives. 
Actions? Yes. Paul's going to scold the Corinthians for not dealing with a man's sinful behavior in the fifth chapter. We're not to judge one another's motives for service or ministry. A preacher is to please his Lord, not himself, the community, or the church. And the only praise a preacher is to seek is God's. And the same should be true of you. If you'll free yourself from expectations, you can do so by letting God define your position, who you are, what He's called you to do. Let Him judge your performance and then give Him the credit for whatever is accomplished in your life. Six and seven. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you'd not received it? What Paul had to say about himself and Apollos wasn't said because they didn't understand the nature of ministry or because there was some rivalry between them. The problem was with the Corinthians. They had set themselves up as authorities on ministry and had gone beyond what was written. They had decided what had been revealed through the prophets and apostles and recorded in God's Word wasn't enough. So they looked around. They talked. They thought. They figured. And apparently then they wrote their own job description for preachers and other workers in the kingdom. And of course their job descriptions differed so the way they judged the performance of preachers and each other differed. That, in turn, led no doubt to constant struggles for control in the church, with one group fighting against the other and each claiming that they were right. And then when something one faction promoted worked, they could use their success as justification for their position and declare that they had been proven right. Now, nothing speaks louder than success. And so everyone should yield to their leadership. Of course, it wouldn't be long until something wouldn't go as planned. And someone else would insist that their plans and programs for the church were better. And so whoever's plans were working at the moment would take credit for their success. Well, Paul cuts the ground out from under them all when he says, What do you have that you didn't receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Even if your ideas seem to work or your approach seems to be successful, they're really not all yours anyway. At least some of what went into your success came from elsewhere. 
It may have come from something you read, something you heard about, or it may have even come from the Lord. But however it originated, you can't take the credit for it. So don't get puffed up thinking you have all the answers and everyone else should listen to you. You If we're open to the Lord, He will guide us. But let's never forget He's also working through our brothers and sisters. If together we seek His wisdom and search His Word, we will come closer to discerning His will than if we're always fighting for our ideas and taking credit when something seems to work. You know, there are tons of books out there on how to succeed in life and how to succeed in ministry, and I'm sure there are some specifically targeting your occupation. Just be gracious enough to assume that we we can take in some ideas, but ultimately... We don't take the credit for what's accomplished in our life. And we don't sell books to convince everybody to listen to us. We share what we found, maybe openly and freely and cautiously. Let's not become arrogant. And that's that's easy, especially in the ministry. It really is. And then, of course, the results we see in ministry are are actually not our responsibility anyway. We plant and we water, but it's God who causes whatever growth we see or don't see. I read something kind of interesting just just this morning. Marilyn found, we're having a little reunion of Bun Park uh, people. That was the church I was a youth minister uh, for four and a half years. Apparently, my mom saved some stuff that I hadn't saved. And Marilyn found it, and I was reading it over. And it's really interesting. I had to share it with you sometime. Talked about how great I was. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that I was musical, that I played my accordion before everybody. Woo! <laughs> You'd like that, Bonnie. Uh, but, you know, I, I found something kind of interesting. I was reading, and the church that I served, when I went there, they were... Averaging 130, 133. When I went from there to Washington, Kansas, the church ran about 130 to 150. I came here 40 years ago. The church was running about 130. And it peaked a couple times. It broke 200 and got close to 200. But it always seemed to settle back down to about 130. Now, I don't know why. You know, I, I've heard about megachurches just like you have. And there are times when something says, man, you haven't done squat in 40 years. But maybe God puts us where he wants us. And he says, just be faithful. Just plant, just water. Don't worry about what happens. And give God the glory. That's easy to say. And it's hard to do, even after 40 years. I get a little weird streak when I read of someone else's great successes. 
But let's give God the glory for what he's doing. Let's not worry about the results of our ministry. Let's not worry about what you accomplish in life. Let's just be faithful. Let's just be servants of God. Let's be under rowers in the belly of the boat. Let's just listen to his voice. And let him use us however he sees fit. Man, if we can do that, what freedom we have to just enjoy life and to feel good about walking in the light of our Lord and hopefully seeing a smile on his face because that's all we really care about. That's all we really care about. You know, if we would see success in the ministry or in life in general, let's give credit where credit is due. That's not only right, it frees us from trying to meet expectations that are out of our control anyway. Conflict will disappear and rivalry will cease if we all let God define our positions, judge our performance, and have the credit for the successes we're privileged to play a part in. The bottom line is quite simply that if we will surrender our all to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we'll find freedom from all expectations except His. And with the guidance of His Word, the power of His Spirit and the cooperation of His people, we can meet those expectations. And that is all that really matters. If you want to be free from the conflicting expectations everyone has for you, come and commit yourself to the expectations of the only one who really 